So if you're using the simplified, the page number is 1122, 1122, Philippians chapter 3. And we are looking at five verses tonight. And Paul's writing to these uh, church people that he loves very dearly. And he's pointing them to some truths. Generally speaking, the book is not written because there's a big problem. He does mention a few uh, problems. We'll look at actually one of them tonight a little bit later um, in, the, in the message tonight in chapter 4. And before we read, let me just remind us all that when the Bible was first written, it was not written in chapters. And uh, there was no verses, there was no chapters. And so when you come to a chapter division, um, it's, it's very helpful to, to just recognize that it's not necessarily a brand new topic or you know, even a, a, a brand new uh, whatever, but it, it really is written as one, one letter. And the chapters and the verses are just there to help us find our way around. You know, in the Bible, you can find uh, reference to this concept, how they didn't have chapters and verses when it says that they opened the scroll. Jesus was reading in the synagogue, and it says they opened the scroll to the place where it read, and then it starts the reading. And, and so they didn't have a numbering system or anything of that nature. So uh, that's just kind of a little helpful side note. So if you're able to stand for the reading, stand with me, and we'll read Philippians 3.20, and we'll read down into chapter 4, verse 3. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from where we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned similar to his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Iodia and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat you also, true companion, help those women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with my other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we turn to you in this moment. Bless this time, I pray. Give us uh, understanding, give us faith, help us to embrace the truth that is here, and may we walk in line with it. May it free us up to more fully and, and freely accomplish your will, and we'll praise you and thank you as we head home in a bit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. The verse starts talking off about where they are looking, where they are looking. You know, um, I am I'm told that there is a problem with people when they drive and they are distracted and they're looking at something else. Maybe you've uh, even experienced or seen this, right? And uh, certainly it is a temptation with phones these days to be distracted or to be looking. And the, the trouble is when you're doing one thing and you're looking somewhere else, you can uh, be divided, you can be distracted, and sometimes very uh, dangerous and bad things can happen, right? If you don't believe that, just get on YouTube and put in distracted driving and you can see all sorts of videos about people looking in the wrong place. When we ended off last week, we, we talked about how Paul describes these enemies of the cross of Christ. And he, he gives a description of them and then he gives a contrast and Perhaps we should have really read verse 18 and 19, and so I'll just do that now, and then we'll go right into verse 20. But he talks about these enemies in verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies 
of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. So that's in a parenthesis, right? So he talks about the enemies of the cross of Christ. And last week, we kind of explained that a little bit. And when we think of enemies of Jesus, we don't always think of things in these description. But the final description is simply those who mind earthly things, right? And if all we care about is this earth, we're not focused on what, what Christ is focused on, and we're actually moving in the wrong direction, spiritually speaking. But he draws a contrast. And notice how in, 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 a, in a clear way, in a lot of these, there's a, a direct contrast between the enemies and the saints that are moving in the right direction. So he calls them enemies in verse 18, but look at verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, right? So you have an enemy, an enemy, uh, someone on the opposite side going the wrong way, and then you have our citizenship is in heaven. So there's a contrast between an enemy and a citizen. Then we also see a contrast between whose end is destruction, verse 19. In other words, at the end of their journey, there is judgment, there is destruction, there is punishment. But for us, it says this, from where we also look, for the Savior. That's verse 20. We look for the Savior. So in other words, at the end of our journey, what are we going to see? We're going to see the Lord Jesus, right? And, and so there's a contrast between the enemies of Christ. At the end of their journey, there is destruction. And at the end of the Christian's journey is the Lord Jesus. We also see that it says in verse 19, whose glory is in their shame. So notice that word glory. In other words, they're boasting their... Um, their focus, their, uh, the thing that they really hold up is actually something that's shameful. But for us, notice verse 21 says, Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned similar to his glorious body? So here we have that word glory again, but it's a positive thing. In other words, we have a body of glory that is yet awaiting us, um, and it will be similar to Christ's body himself. And then we also see in verse 19, Whose God is their belly? And when we look in verse 21, it says that we will be changed, I'm sorry, fashioned, that it may be fashioned similar to his glorious body. They're focused on their earthly body. We have a heavenly body awaiting us. And then one more, there's one more, and it ends in verse 19, who mind earthly things. But the end of verse 21 says, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. You know, when people are minding earthly things, it usually means they're trying to make it happen, right? They're trying to arrange their life the way they want. Um, I don't know if you've observed this, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, videos and books about self-improvement, right? And you can uh, lose weight, and you can get your, your schedule in order, and you can have uh, the best life possible. And I think those are, you know, there's some reasonable good things in some of those things. But some people, they live all for this life and they seek to put everything the way it should be and they put their house the way it should be and they put their finances the way it should be and they put all these things the way it should be and you know what happens to them at the end of it all? They die. Now, I don't want to sound depressing, but if that's all that life is about and there's nothing else, is that a good trade? We do all this work, we put it all together, but when we read about Jesus, what does it say of him? He is able to subdue all things to himself. When we read in the scripture and we find out what Jesus has planned, Jesus is subduing all things to himself. All this world, all the powers of this world, all the kingdoms of this world will one day be beneath Jesus' feet. And he will rule and he will reign, right? 
And so if my life is wrapped up in his working, that sounds like much different than someone who is simply minding earthly things. So there's a big contrast being displayed here. And I want to pick up in verse 19, and we see here this looking up. In verse 19 and 20, we see looking up. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven from where we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here the passage tells us we have a citizenship that is in heaven. I have a uh, passport at home, and when I travel to another country, I can hold it up, and they'll know that I'm a U.S. citizen. And they'll say, all right, you can pass through, or, you know, if, if they don't, <laughs> if Americans aren't welcome, they'll say, no, thank you, you know, hit the door. I guess if you go to North Korea or maybe Russia or something, the U.S. passport would not be welcome. Well, as believers, we have a citizenship, and it is in heaven. You know what that means, then? That our citizenship is not in this world. That's not where our citizenship is. Now, I have an earthly citizenship, but that's not my ultimate citizenship. Do you know that the day I die, I'm no longer a U.S. citizen? I'm no longer an American. I was one. But at that moment, I will be in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will be in His kingdom. You know, Philippi was a Roman colony, a Roman city colony, we might say. And there was a lot, there's some parallels to them in their time. The, the citizen of Philippi, because it was connected to Rome, they had privileges, they had rights. And can I remind us, Christian, that you have some privileges and rights because you are God's child. Because, well, specifically, you're his citizen, right? You're a member of his kingdom. And there is, there is rights and there is privileges and there's also responsibilities and duties. And, um, and that's because of our citizenship. This point here that's being made is really, really vital for us to grow in our spiritual life. And it's the point of being a pilgrim. This world is not our home. We're moving on to the eternal world. And sometimes Christians get very torn in two because they're, they have one foot in this world and they have one foot in the next and they kind of toggle back and forth and they get stretched back and forth. And um, that's a not very fun place to be. But if we, with God's help, will put both of our feet into what God is doing and His will and His plan, and we can learn to let go of this world, it creates a much different life. There's a very famous book written by John Bunyan, and it's called Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim took the name Pilgrim because he had left the city of destruction, as it was called, and he was going to the heavenly city. And the whole book is about him. Um, it's actually one of the most, the highest selling book behind the Bible, I think or one of the most, um, maybe that's in the religious category, but, but um, Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read it, get yourself, uh, maybe you want an abridged copy, I don't know. It's rather in-depth, as I remember. But um, a great story. But the point is, he said, I'm leaving here, and I'm going there. And so he began to arrange his life with that mentality, that he was leaving. Now notice at the end of the verse, it says, from where we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I had to read that several times when I was studying, and, I, I, and it says, from where we also look. And the, the from where is heaven. And it's not saying we're looking from heaven because we're not there, we're here. But it's saying we look for Jesus from heaven. That's what it's saying. So we look for Jesus from heaven. And a simple question is this. Are you looking for Jesus to come back? Are you looking for his return? Does the return of Jesus scare you? Or does it give you comfort and peace? 
The Bible tells us that one day the Lord Jesus will return. And his, the first return is a return to the clouds. And his children are taken up to be with him. And there's a seven-year period, and at the end of that, he will return physically, and we will return with him. And he will rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. Would it ruin your life if Jesus came back tonight? Would it ruin the plans that you have set up? Would you be, would you be crying as you look back at the earth as the Lord takes you up? Or would you be looking up to Jesus and smiling and saying, it's so good to see you? Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference of perspective? He says we're looking. We look for the Savior. We're looking for Jesus. That's what we're looking towards. And in our Christian life, we must keep looking to Jesus. We must keep looking to what is next. And what's next is for the Lord Jesus to come. So he says, we're looking. And I hope you're looking there. And you say, what, is, what does this mean, John? Am I supposed to, you know, am I supposed to like put up a plaque that says Jesus may come today? Well, that's maybe not a bad thing to do. But I think in, it, it's not obviously a literal looking, but it's in a mindset. It's a mentality. It's a way of life. In other words, the day that I have in front of me is a gift from God, and I know that Jesus may come today, and I need to consider His will for me today because this day is there's this day that I have right here, and then there's that day where He comes. And I want to live this day a certain way because that day is coming. The day of Christ is coming for sure. For certain, there's no doubt about it. The day of Christ is coming where He returns. So I want to live this day in light of that day. I want to connect the two. I want to make a, a connection between these two days. Now, this is some good news in verse 21. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned similar to His glorious body. Let's talk about this. Another thing that we're looking for, we're looking to Jesus, but He is going to do a transforming work in our body. Now, remember that these who are enemies of the cross of Christ, it says their God is their belly. And I explained last week that it, it was not simply a reference to like someone who spends a lot of money on food or someone who's overeating, although that, that may you know, be connected to the idea, but it's, it's broader in that they're just living for this life. They're just living for the pleasures that this life has to offer them. Hedonistic, um, uh, sensual in the sense of living for the five senses. That's the enemies of the cross of Christ. But for us, we're looking at Jesus and He is going to take our body and He is going to transform it. He is going to change it. And, and notice it calls it our vile body. Now, that word vile probably comes off a little strong or a little differently than, than maybe when the Bible is first translated here. But it's not speaking of wicked body, okay? Because our bodies aren't evil. But the, the word here is indicating weak, earthly, uh, limited, um, this broken body, if you will. As you age, your body begins to break down. Um, we don't need to take any testimonies on that point, do we, here tonight? Okay? Your body does get worse as you go. And he says, we're looking for Jesus, and he is going to transform our body. No longer are we going to be bound by the, the feelings of our bodies and the, the uh, pains of our bodies and the desires of our bodies, but we're going to have a different body. It will be a body like Jesus. And, and so he says, we're looking to Christ who is going to change our body. It will be ch just like his glorious body. And then it says, according to the working, whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. He is able to subdue all things to himself. 
Well, I wonder what some of the all things are. What are some of the things that Christ can subdue to himself? Well, in context, you know what one of them is? Our bodies. Does your body have desires that you can't tame or contain or control? Who can control, who can subdue all things to himself? He can. Sometimes we have, uh, we have uh, desires, sometimes we have temptations, sometimes we have feelings, and they seem to call the shots, right? They seem to uh, be in charge, right? But I'm glad to announce to you tonight there's someone who has the power to subdue all things to himself. I hope as a Christian you have found that the Lord can subdue all things to himself. You know something else that's included in this? He can subdue all people to himself. There is no one that can exalt themselves above Jesus and stay there. Now, Satan tried to do it. He tried to exalt himself above God. But God is able to subdue all people to himself. In Psalm 8, 6, and actually, um, let's see here. I'm thinking about Psalm 2. Um, I'm going to turn over there because I was going to... Well, in Psalm 2, it talks about how the Lord will subdue all kings. All the government authorities of the earth will be submitted to himself. Here's what Psalm 8, 6 says. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And so the Lord Jesus, he has all power, all authority. And the writer says, Paul says, guess what? He is able to subdue all things to himself. He can subdue me and my heart. He can subdue the issues that I have in my own life. He has the power to subdue that according to his will. But every person as well. Maybe there are people in your life that you know are not in submission to Jesus. Sometimes uh, people will ask me to pray for their family member, their uh, work uh, you know, associate, or some other person in their life. And a lot of times they ask because they're causing them pain. Right? They'll say, Pastor John, this person, they, they do this to me, and they say this to me, and they, you know, they, they lay out some of their pains. And then they say, can you pray for me? Can you, or sometimes they say, can you pray for him? Can you pray for her, right? Pray about this person. And I'm thankful that with, with true hope and with true confidence, I can say that Christ has the ability to subdue people to himself. Now, I certainly pray for, and I wish for, and I know the Lord himself wishes for, that subduing would be through, through a contrite heart and coming to Christ in faith and in humility and that sort of thing. But we know that eventually, sooner or later, every knee will bow to Jesus, right? Philippians 2 that we just went through recently said that every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee. And, and sometimes I like to read a verse like that and then I think about some of the people that will kneel to Jesus. You know, the, the ones that have reigned over kingdoms and the ones who have preached before thousands or the ones who have uh, maybe even done quite awful things and I just remember one day they'll bow their knee to Jesus. You know what this does as we think about these things? I'm looking for Jesus to come. I'm, I'm remembering that he's going to change my body. And he can even be doing that changing work now, but, but he's doing a work and one day all things will be subdued to him. It changes our perspective, right? Because you know, sometimes we get, we get locked in on a Tuesday afternoon with the problem person right here and with the temptation right in front of me. And we need to step back just a little. Remember, I'm a pilgrim. Jesus is coming back. One day, all things will be subdued to him. And, and it helps align our perspective. It helps us see things differently. Instead of being stuck in the troubles of the moment. Now, uh, another thing that I just want to point out is that 
Go back to uh, Philippians 2, with, if you would, with me. In Philippians 2, in verse 6 through 9, I want you to see that in the, in the passage there, we have a descent from, from heaven to earth, okay? And so verse 6 says, "...who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took on himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men." And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. All right, so in these verses, we have Jesus coming down from heaven. That's a great Christmas text right there, right? He was in heaven, equal with God, but he didn't uh, count it robbery to be equal. And that has the idea of he didn't cling to it. But he lowered himself, made himself with no reputation, took upon the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men, and then he moved to death and even the death of the cross. So we have this huge coming down, right? But if you, if you notice when we, when we read in Philippians 3, notice how, how we have such a contrast where it says for us, our citizenship is in heaven from where we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned similar to his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. What we have here is the opposite, and that is here we are on earth. We're looking to heaven, and the Bible's promising us that because of faith in Christ, one day we will be taken to heaven. Our body will be made like his body, right? When he came to earth, he was made as a human. But we will be taken to heaven, and we will be made like him. So this is the beautiful Christmas story in, in fullness. It's him coming to earth, living a life as, as a, a human in perfection, dying on the cross for our sins, and then ascending to heaven. Here we are, we're born into sin, but when we come to faith in Christ, now our future is settled, and we one day will ascend off this earth, we will go to heaven, our bodies will be transformed, we'll be made like Him. This is the full circle. And so, if I could say it this way, only half of the circle has been done, and the rest is yet to be completed. Now, very quickly, let's look at chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. In these verses, he, he calls them twice in verse 1, dearly beloved. Dearly beloved, dearly beloved. I think they were truly loved. And he also calls them my joy and crown. He, he did something very similar with the, the Thessalonians. Paul loves these people. And when he calls them his crown, uh, when we think of crown, we probably think of like a king on a throne with his crown. But the, the, the crown here is not talking about like a kingly crown of authority. It's talking about a crown of the winner. And in the races, the Roman races, a, a wreath would be made of uh, I don't know, some sort of plant or leaves or something. But that wreath would be placed on the head of the winner. And it's a crown that references winning, completing the race, at the end of the race. That's the idea of the crown that's being talked about. And he calls these people his crown. That's a little strange. But I think what he means is that he has served them in the Lord. He has seen them go on for the Lord. And he knows one day they'll be with the Lord. And he'll be with the Lord. And it will be a crown of rejoicing. He'll be so happy that they're with him in heaven. So he tells them to stand fast. In the midst of the enemies that's talked about earlier. In the midst of the... The dogs and the evil workers talked about in chapter 3. Um, stand fast in the face of temporary temptations and pursuits of this life. Stand fast in one mind, the mind of Christ, chapter 2. And as we get into ver verse 2, he gets really personal. 
Now, sometimes the Bible gets really personal, but these two ladies got a, a shout out, all right? In the book of Philippians, I beseech Eodia and I beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. I'm just kind of glad that I was not uh, named and called out in the Bible in this fashion, but uh, Eodia and Syntyche were having a problem in the church, and there was division in the church, and Paul asked these two ladies, he urges them, I should say, to be of the same mind. Um, earlier in chapter 2, he had said, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Do you know that it is damaging when you have a church with people who are at odds with each other, who are uh, fighting, squabbling, bitter? I mean, I'm thankful that th these are not stories from our church, but I've heard of churches where some people will come in and they'll sit on opposite sides, and for years they will never speak to one another, and um, you know, there's gossip and all sorts of things of that nature. And I don't know what the nature of the disagreement was, but Paul addressed Eodia and Paul addressed Syntyche. Now, let, let me just kind of lay out a what-if or a what-if scenario. You know, offenses do happen in life. Jesus said, it is certain that offenses will come. And it's interesting how he addresses Eodia and he addresses Syntyche, and he tells them both to be of the same mind. We might have wished that he would have said, all right, Eodia, you're in the wrong. You go apologize to Syntyche, right? Or vice versa. But he didn't do it that way. He urged them both. And you know, the Bible, the Bible indicates that if... Um, that, that in a perfect scenario, the, the one offended against and the offender, if you will, should meet themselves running to each other. And, and they should reach out to the other. Because you know how it is. Some people say, well, if they were willing to come apologize, I would be willing to forgive, right? And then the other person says, well, you know, um, I, if they would come talk to me, I would, I would make it right with them, right? But he says to both of these, be of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, you have to let go, you have to forgive, you have to work through those difficulties, whatever they may be, and then be of the same mind. Sounds really easy on paper, doesn't it? It's like, oh yeah, just be of the same mind. But it requires some humility. It requires a conversation. It requires letting Christ lead the both of you to be of the same mind. And then verse 3, And I entreat you also, true companion, Help those women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with my other fellow laborers, whose names are written in the book of life. Uh, this verse is, a, we assume it's connected to verse 2. And so when it says true companion, um, the word literally has the idea of a yoke, like being yoked up with someone. Not egg yoke, all right? Not that kind of yoke. Y-O-K-E, that kind of yoke. Like oxen pulling a yoke. And... Um, so some people think it's a name, and so they would transliterate the name. Other people say it's a label, and they would know who that's referring to. But it's singular, and I entreat you also, true companion. So uh, he, he's entreating someone else perhaps to help these two ladies. Um, and some people say the help is help get this problem ironed out. Other people say it's help in the gospel, help in the work of the, the ministry. Um, and then he, he mentions that these names are written in the book of life. And the implication being that if someone's name is in the book of life, then they're a sister or brother in Christ, and they should be uh, treated and, and treated with respect and loved and served in the Lord. So he calls them to unity. He calls them to forgiveness. He calls them to, to get along. Now, 
Um, as we think of application, there's, there's two main anchors of our application tonight. The, f- the first two verses we looked at taught us to look for Jesus. Look for His return. Know that He's coming back. Be ready for His return. And let me just say that our first step of readiness is to know that we're forgiven. To know we're God's child. That He has completely forgiven us of all sin so that we can be received into heaven. Um, the Bible says very clearly that all have sinned and that sin cannot enter heaven. And so those two things mean we must be forgiven. But then after that, to live a life that is expecting and anticipating and awaiting the coming of Christ. If Christ were to come today, would you wish, would you wish that things were different in your life? Would you wish that your heart was in a better place? What would you wish for? Or would you have that open anticipation that says, I am so glad this day came, right? And then the second piece of application is about unity in the church. Syntyche and uh, Iodia, they were at odds. And if, if there's anyone in the church or outside of the church for that matter that you're at odds with, that there's bitterness or unforgiveness in your heart towards them, um, Paul would say, I beseech, and he would put your word right there, I beseech you to, um, to be of the same mind and to be unified. If there's anything that we've gone over tonight that um, you have a question about, I'll be available. Um, And maybe it's not just a question, but it's maybe more of, I need some more help with that. Um, We're available to talk about those things. Let's have a word of prayer, and uh, we will take any questions or, or comments from the text, okay? Lord, we thank you for this passage in Philippians. I'm thankful that you are coming back. And I ask you, Lord, to teach us to live Uh, remembering that this day may end with the day of Christ and teach us to live with that pilgrim mindset. We want to be useful and fruitful here on this earth. We want to make an impact while we're here. But Lord, may we not be entrapped by a love for the passing things of this life that do not bring true fulfillment. Lord, help us to remember that one day all things will be submitted to you. So may we right now submit ourselves to you. Help us to learn of you and grow in you. And then I pray for that, that one mind, that unity that Iodia and Syntyche lacked. But I believe with the Lord's help, they, they got it figured out. And you helped them to come together. And uh, if it's a misunderstanding, if it's a forgiveness for sin, if it's um, just a humble working through a problem together, help us, Lord, to be a church and to be a people that, um, that work through things, that love each other, and that, that come out in one mind. I thank you for the truth of your word, how it helps us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, uh, the prayer sheets can be handed.